So this is uh, the uh, second in a series that I'm doing on hope and healing. Just kidding. Uh, last time I, I preached, it was also on healing. And so uh, if you notice, you have one of the sermon cards. This one's also called Healing the Body and the Soul. Okay. Oh, I don't think I'm on here. How about now? Is it better? Okay. Sorry. Had it on mute. So... That on the sermon card, it's, it's titled, Healing the Body and the Soul. And so if you, uh, if you read over chapter 3 of Acts, you can see that this chapter definitely starts out with, with healing. The lame beggar is healed by Peter and John. And so uh, it, is, it should start to spur our thoughts to think about healing. A lot of times when we think about healing, we do think about the physical body healing the physical body but there's a lot of emotional and spiritual healing that needs to take place as well and so if we look out into the world we see a lot of brokenness we see that there is a great need for healing brokenness in relationships brokenness in families marriages brokenness across ethnic racial barriers brokenness from one country to the next. We see just in the past several weeks war again in in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. We see that there is brokenness all throughout the world as a result of sin. But there's also brokenness in the church. Whether it be resentment that's built up, that's built up over years between former friends. We see brokenness in families. We see the, the consequences of that lived out. We see that there's brokenness in, in emotional vulnerability, depression, anxiety, stress. There is a great need for healing in the church as well. And so uh, last week, Pastor Adam asked the question, why? Why are we here? I think he was specifically talking about why are we at church? but also the greater question of why are we here. And so I thought that I would try to continue that on by not asking why, but asking who. You know, when we think about our lives, why we are here, we also should think about who. Who put us here? Who brought us into existence? We have our parents, no doubt, but there's there's another who. And so out in the world, in order to to try to solve some of this hurt, this healing that needs to take place, they ask, who? Who's going to help me feel better? Who's going to help me solve my problems? Who's going to give me what I need to feel better? And oftentimes, most of the time, that that answer begins to turn inward. And so the answer is, is self. The who is the self. In the church, we can be guilty of this as well. We can begin to turn inward. Uh, If you go to Christian bookstores, there's no shortage of Christian self-help books. But the answer for us, when we ask the question, who, who do we turn to for hope, healing, and restoration, should not be ourselves, it should be God. And so, that's the answer that I want us to try to, to get closer to as we go through this, this sermon today. And, and I hope that this sermon accomplishes at least a couple of other things as well. 
These aren't my points, but this is my, my desire, my motivation for this sermon. I hope that we see the glory of God at work in redemptive history to bring about healing, hope, and restoration through His Son, Jesus Christ. I hope that seeing that moves us into true worship and witness. That's why we exist, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to share that with the world. So, if you would now, if you would uh, turn to Acts 3 in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's a Black Pew Bible in front of you, and I believe it's on page um, 857. Yes, 857. Uh, if you're a guest and you need a Bible, or if you know someone that needs a Bible, we offer free Bibles in the back in the foyer there. They're those blue paperback ones. Feel free to take one with you. But if you would stand now as we read God's Word and we're not going to read the entire chapter of Acts. We're just going to read the first 11 verses. And when I finish, um, if you would say, praise be to God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate at the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So if you do want to take notes, I have four points, and they're kind of broken down. Um, I'll give you the chapter, and, or excuse me, the verse references as well. But my first one is the miracle of physical healing. The miracle of physical healing, which we see in verses 1 through 10. And then my next three should be pretty easy to remember. Uh, I couldn't come up with one to, the first one to fit with these three, but you'll see what I mean. So point number two, redemptive condemnation. Redemptive condemnation. And that's verses 11 through 16. Third point is redemptive restoration. Redemptive restoration we'll look at in verses 17 through 21. And then the fourth point, redemptive proclamation. Redemptive proclamation in verses 22 through 26. So you can see that the, my first point, I couldn't follow along with that alliteration. So uh, it's going to be the one that sticks out. So then let's take a look at the first point, the miracle of physical healing. So in verse 1, we see Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And it seems from last week's sermon in chapter 2 that this was something that they did day by day. It was part of the rhythm of teaching, of fellowship, hospitality, prayer, uh, performing miracles, the breaking of bread, the living life with the other believers. And that also included going to the temple together. So we see them going to the temple at the hour of prayer. In verse 2, 
we see that Luke says there's a lame man. He's lame from birth, and he was laid daily at the beautiful gate to ask for alms. He was asking for money. He was dependent upon other people. This man was broken physically and in need of help from others. So his, he was asking, his who was other people. He was asking for help from other people. John, Peter, surely on their many treks of going to the temple had passed this man many times. But yet, they had never stopped. It's possible that they had even given this man some money when they did have it. But they had never really stopped and spoken to this man. But regardless, Peter and John were on, their, on the way to the temple. And on this day, their routine was interrupted. It was interrupted by God as he brought their attention to this lame beggar. We talk a lot about providence. We talk about a lot of times about being receptive to the Spirit. We see that Peter and John, as they were on their way, going about their lives, doing their things that they did every day, were interrupted by God in a divine way. We also see in verse 2 that this man, he was lame from birth. In chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that this man was about 40 years old. So this was not a, a new condition for him. This was something that he had been dealing with from birth. In this area, he would have been well known to all the citizens. They would have known him. They would have seen him. He would have been part of their, of their lives, part of the scenery, if you will. But my point here is that Later on in verse 10, it says that they, the people, they recognized him. They knew that for decades he had been lame, lame from birth, dependent upon other people for help. His hope was in other people and the generosity to give them silver, gold for his daily life. So when these people recognized him, that's what they were seeing is he was miraculously healed. They understood that this miracle, it was legitimate. So when they responded with wonder and amazement, it was, it was genuine wonder and amazement at the, at the life that had been changed. A man that was 40 years old had been changed miraculously, instantaneously, so that when he was pulled up and began to leap and praise God, it filled them with wonder and awe. They were amazed. So now it's at this point, though, in, in reading these verses, reading about this miraculous healing, this physical healing, we should be asking, why this miracle and why now? Why did Peter and John stop to perform the miracle rather than just going on to the temple? You know, last week, Pastor Adam, in his sermon, talked about what happened when, when Peter preached. Thousands were saved. They heard the word and they responded and they were baptized. So maybe Peter was like, yeah, I've got no time to stop. I've got to get to the temple and preach again. Thousands are waiting to be saved. But yet he stopped. He stopped and spent time with this man. For some other clues on why Peter and John stopped at this moment, we can turn back to the Gospels. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he performed many miracles. Those miracles radically changed the lives of those individuals. Usually those miracles resulted in some kind of physical or temporal healing. That 
that temporal healing, though, it allowed restoration back into the community. You think about lepers. Lepers were outside the community. They had lost fellowship. They had lost relationship. They were alone and isolated. They were broken from the rest of the community. The woman with the blood disorder that Jesus healed miraculously. The same thing. It's, it's, it's that brokenness in terms of relationships outside of the community. So when Jesus healed these people the, of the leprosy, of the woman with the blood disorder, they were able to be restored back into those temporal relationships with family, with friends, with community. It gave their life meaning. But we know that par- or excuse me, miracles are sort of like parables. There's a deeper meaning there. It's not just for a temporal fix. It's not just for the, the silver and the gold for today's food. It's much, much deeper. And those miracles of Jesus, they often drew a crowd. And it's usually at that point that Jesus would speak to the crowd. Sometimes it was just his disciples. Other times it was thousands. And it's at this point that he would proclaim the gospel of the truth of God's kingdom being brought in. He would then call for repentance. And we see this in Mark chapter 1. It says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The temporal healing and restoration was followed by the call to a deeper hope and reality, a call to repentance, the offer of eternal healing and restoration. And so now here in Acts, we find a similar pattern that the apostles, the disciples, are following. It was similar to what Jesus did as he performed those miracles, and then he called for repentance, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we can read about this miracle in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3 there in Acts. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He took the man by the right hand. He raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God in front of this crowd. This reaction of the lame beggar is one of complete and unashamed joy. His excitement over this changed life, this restoration physically, this ability to not be dependent upon other people, it represented so much more than maybe some of us could imagine. This caused a response in him that was pure joy. It was uninhibited worship. Maybe this recalls, for some of us, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 33, verses 3 through 5 says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. This uh, prophecy in Isaiah is one of ransom and restoration. God acted on behalf of his people to rescue them, heal them physically, calm them spiritually and emotionally and restore them to a peaceful land. 
So, that's a lot of exposition. What sort of application can we draw from this passage? There's much that can be drawn from here, but I think one thing that we can draw from this passage is that we can see that sometimes God can break in on a rightly ordered life. You think about from Acts chapter 2 that Pastor David, or excuse me, Pastor Adam had preached on about how the Christians were living together, how they had all things in common, how they were daily going to the temple and praying, how they were breaking bread with one another, how they were studying and hearing the word teach, how they had a rhythm of life. It was a rightly ordered life. But sometimes, just like in this instance with Peter and John, that life can be broken into by God. Peter and John were on their way to the temple at the hour of the evening prayer, something they had done over and over again, something that was a good and right thing to do. We see also that, like I said, they had been involved in teaching and preaching. They had been, had been with the other disciples leading out in this way with the other Christians. Also, good and right thing to do. They were breaking bread with one another. They were showing hospitality. They were sharing what they had when need arose. Good and right things to do. But we see here that also they were spirit-led. They were obedient to the Spirit's prompting when they stopped and spoke to this lame beggar. Again, probably passed him many, many, many times before because they day by day went to the temple to pray. But for some reason, in the providence of God, at this particular moment, he stopped them and they spent time with this lame beggar, and he was healed for the glory of God. Let me encourage you, so here's a little bit of application, to develop healthy daily rhythms centered around God and his word. It's usually, usually, within these that we live out our calling as a neighbor, as co-workers, employers, employee, friend, husband, wife, child, whatever. There's all sorts of relational dynamics that exist. Grandparents, uncles, aunts. In addition to working and playing, preparing meals, changing diapers, fixing flats, read God's word each and every day, even if only a small portion, and ask the Spirit to open it up to you and grow your desire for it and for Him. This is the very foundation for our lives as believers. We must be in His word. That must be a main focus in our daily rhythms. Find a brother or sister in Christ to pray with, to encourage in this way. Train your mind by starting small to meditate deeply on a verse or a passage of scripture. Again, this is the very foundation for what we are to do and who we are to be. And I think it's through these natural rhythms of life, these natural relationships that we all have, that God can do or God does do supernatural things. Maybe he will, be, will use you to be that one that stops to fix a flat, or that is spirit-inspired to make a meal to, for a neighbor. And that opens up a door for not maybe a physical healing, but for you to speak truth, the gospel truth, to proclaim the gospel to this person that desperately needs it at that hour. So as we are going along day by day, pray and ask God that he would open up those, those opportunities that are sort of where he's breaking in to our daily rhythms 
to be used to share and proclaim the gospel truth. Peter says in his first epistle, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be prepared to be used by God as you live your life as a believer in the one true God. So be prepared, spend time in his word, and be ready to be used by God as he breaks into our daily lives. So next, we, let's turn to uh, verses 11 through 16. And this is a uh, second point, redemptive condemnation. Redemptive condemnation. I, I hope that as we go through this point, you will, you will see what I mean by redemptive condemnation. Peter sees the utterly astounded crowd that is quickly gathered. And led by the Spirit, he addresses them. And he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. So Peter here draws their attention to the God of their fathers, the God of Israel, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. He's wanted to start making the connections between what they would have already known as Jewish people, what they would have known about God, his covenant, his restoration and through his servant. And, they were, and now he was going to begin to fill it in with the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And so in verse 13, Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Peter most likely had in mind chapters 40 through 53 of the prophet Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah 49, a chapter on the servant of the Lord and the restoration of Israel, that we read these verses. And he said to him, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So see, Peter had in mind all that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied about this servant. And so he knew also that many of these Jews would be familiar with his teaching as well. And that they in, 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 would, in a sense, and remember, this is just after the, the, the ministry of Jesus, his crucifixion, and for many of them, his supposed resurrection. And so there had been a big uproar in Jerusalem. And so they would have been familiar with this. They would have known that context. And so they would have known that many people had seen Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of these prophecies, the hope for the healing of the nation of Israel, the restoration of the kingdom, but how that had been dashed with his crucifixion. 
Peter here was getting ready to hammer the crowd. He was making his argument that Jesus was this servant and that God's redemptive plan of salvation for Israel, for true Israel, was brought about through him and that reconciliation and restoration and healing were happening because of him, because of Jesus. And back in verse 13, Peter said, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. Peter is shooting them straight. He's telling the truth. He's not holding any punches. And in doing this, he's setting up a, a very interesting wordplay. He tells the crowd that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. He says that they had an opportunity to release Jesus. But instead, they asked for a murderer to be released. They asked for Barabbas to be released. So they not only turned Jesus over to the authorities for trial, for torture, humiliation, and ultimately, ultimately death on the cross, he, and, and by the way, he doesn't even bother bringing in, really, what the Romans did. He doesn't really bring in all that the, the Romans inflicted upon Christ. He's, he's putting all the weight, all the weightiness and responsibility on to these Jews. He wants them to feel the weight of their sin. He wants them to feel the weight of their actions. And this is, this is why... I say this is redemptive condemnation. He wants them to feel their condemnation. These men were sinners just like us. They and we too, we need to feel the weightiness of our sin. We need to understand our condemnation before the holy God of the universe. We need to understand that. We see that Peter is bringing them, these Jews, personally into the story of redemptive history. He wants them to know their place in it. He wants them to know that they are without excuse. He wants them to know that when he calls for repentance shortly, that they're going to have a choice to make because of that condemnation, because of their responsibility that they bear in the death of the servant. And so here's where that interesting wordplay comes in. Peter tells them that they killed the author of life. Killed the author of life. How's that work? Peter's emphasis on Jesus as a source of all life is more than just some sort of ironic wordplay. This is a deep, deep truth that demands consideration and response. Death for the author of life. Think about that. Let me just pause here for a moment. Kids, adults too, if you're C.S. Lewis fans. Anybody ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? If you have, you're going to know where I'm going with this. So this idea, the author of, the, of life being put to death, I think we can see a little bit of this in an analogy that Lewis uses in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We know that Aslan the lion, he, he's a, he represents a type of Christ. And so 
when, uh, when Aslan puts himself in the place of Edmund, if you remember, Edmund had committed treachery against his siblings and against Aslan and against all of Narnia. He had betrayed them. He had sinned. And so Aslan put, him, put himself in the place of Edmund. He allowed the white witch, who was the villain in the story, if you don't know, to put him onto the stone table and to murder him. He willingly gave his life for Edmund. And this was all part of what Lewis called the deep magic. But the next morning, something happened. So after the white witch had killed Aslan, all of her crowd, she had left. They were joyous in their celebration of killing the king of Narnia, the lion. They left. But Susan and Lucy, two of the siblings, had remained behind with Aslan, and they were there with his dead body. Something happened, though, the next morning. Aslan came back to life. And when Susan and Lucy saw the living Aslan, Susan asked, What does this all mean? What does this all mean? Aslan then goes on to tell her about a deeper magic. A deeper magic that went back before time itself even began. He explained that the white witch didn't know that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, no sin, was killed in a traitor's stead, death itself would start working backwards and life would be restored. It was life over death in an ironic twist of Narnian magic. But make no mistake, friends. In our reality, there is no Narnian magic. There is no magic that can reverse death. There is only the supernatural work of God through Jesus Christ. That's it. See, these Jews, they didn't know the deeper magic of what God was doing through his servant, Jesus Christ. They didn't yet understand what they had done by trying to kill the author of life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a simple statement. Jesus is clear. If he is who he says he is, and what he says is really true, then that has to be dealt with in one way or another. It, it demands a response. You might be able to ignore it for a little while, but either believe the truth and live in light of it, or deny it and live in darkness. So friend, if you're here today, and you've never dealt with this question, maybe you've, you've, you've picked up on what I'm trying to convey, I hope that the Spirit is moving and He's using what I'm saying to, to get past my feeble attempts. But I want you to know that you are in need of restoration and reconciliation to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Maybe you felt it in your heart that you need to confess and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for true spiritual healing. If yes is your answer, or if maybe you're not really sure, but you want to talk about it some more, one of the pastors will be down front or in the back. Please come and talk to us. We would love nothing more. I want to promise you this, though. 
Trusting in Jesus does not mean that your physical life will get better. It may, it may not. That's not the point of all of this. The point is that you will be healed. As we sang earlier, every tear will be wiped away. You will be healed eternally. You will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth, glorifying your God forever. And you will never be more satisfied. Never. That is your only hope. Let's look again at verse 16, where Peter says, In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He sums up the first bit of his argument here by saying, It wasn't me or John. It wasn't any special power or piety or religiosity that was within us. It was not our strength. It was by faith in the name of Jesus that this man was healed. More than that, though, it was faith that was through Jesus. If we look back at verse 3, the lame man just wanted some money. He just wanted today's money to buy his bread, a temporal solution to his brokenness, to his problem. He was not exercising faith at this point, but Peter was. When Peter directed his gaze at the man that day, he grabbed his hand and he pulled him up. The man was healed instantaneously, miraculously. The faith to heal came through Jesus, not Peter. It wasn't Peter's power. It wasn't any sort of you know, special words that he said. It was through Jesus. In verse 16, he said, The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The crowd cannot deny the miraculous physical healing of this lame man. Remember, they had, they had known this guy. He was 40 years old. They had seen him day by day, time after time. They knew he was no, you know, nobody trying to scheme. He was no fraud looking for an easy handout. They knew this man. That's why the response was wonder, amazement. They were astounded at what their eyes had just seen. This was no trick. This was a true, miraculous healing, instantaneously. Another pastor, in, in explaining this verse 16, says this. He said, when Peter said in verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, he meant, I'm speaking the words, but Jesus is now healing you. When I speak in his name, with the faith that he has now given me for your healing, he is acting and not me. So all the faith, all the healing is through Jesus. God used Peter and John to stop on that day, to speak with that lame beggar. But it was Jesus who did the healing. It was Jesus who gave the faith. We should all pray that we would not try to do things in our own strength, our own wisdom. We should not try to, to live a certain way in order to get certain results. When you're tired at the end of a long day, and maybe a spouse or a child or a friend, a neighbor wants to have a, a conversation that you know is not going to be over in a couple of minutes, pray. Pray that God would give you the faith, the strength, the patience, the love, the words, the wisdom to have that conversation. 
Because you never know when God is breaking in at that moment in your daily life, your rhythm of life, to do a supernatural work of healing. Sometimes it may be uh, a, a physical or emotional or spiritual need that's sort of more temporal, but sometimes God is using you to do a supernatural work that only He can do, but you need to be willing and spirit-led to be obedient in the spirit, to use the words that God has given to you because you prepared yourself to speak truth, to proclaim the only truth to that person. We should all have that prayer in our hearts. Redemptive condemnation. The weight of responsibility, the weight of sin on the Jews. Now we get to redemptive restoration in verses 17 through 21. Redemptive restoration. Again in verse 17, Peter, in speaking to his fellow Jews, the same ones he had said killed the author of life, said to them that he knew they acted in ignorance. What Peter knew then, we know now. Ignorance, though, does not excuse sin. All throughout God's word, and it's made very clear in Romans 1 and 2, all people will be judged for every thought, word, and deed. And any claim to ignorance, any claim of ignorance of God, the truth, of Christ, will not excuse their sin. People will not be able to stand before God and say that they did not know him, they did not know right and wrong. They will not be able to give an excuse that will allow them to be pardoned of their sin. This is just simply not an option. The message in Romans 1 and 2 and the message here in Acts 3 echoes the message of all of Scripture. And it's the message is the same for all people everywhere at all times. The message is this. There is a standard of truth and morality and it comes from God because it flows from his very character. Sinful man cannot and will not live up to this standard. And Christ the judge, he will judge sinners by this standard based on their works. And this judgment will lead to an agonizing eternal pain, an agonizing eternal death. To our human ears, though, that sounds horrible. It sounds awful. It sounds unfair. And in a sense, I, 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 we, we could agree with that, that it does seem awful. It does seem very horrible, but it is very fair. By God's grace and mercy... Peter doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave the Jews condemned without hope. In verse 18, Peter says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter used the phrase, his Christ, knowing the images and thoughts the Jews would have at hearing it. See, Christ means Messiah, the Anointed One, the fulfiller of all of God's promises to Israel for hope of restoration, of reconciliation, of establishing, reestablishing that kingdom. And that's what these Jews would initially have been thinking. But just like Jesus in the Gospels, Peter was taking familiar knowledge that they would have, and he was showing how it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If we look back to chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel, we can see that Peter had in mind what he had in mind, because it was actually spoken to him by Jesus. When Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. There may be some of you here today, just like those Jews, which have some familiarity with the Bible. You've heard the, the names like David, Moses, Abraham. You've heard of Jesus. You've heard of God. Maybe you've even heard the most famous, if you've ever watched a college football game and back in the early 2000s you saw Tim Tebow, you know John 3.16, right? Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Maybe you've believed in those words in some way, but your life didn't really change. Maybe you just believed in belief itself, belief in something that the Bible says. But let me tell you that unless you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have not been saved. Belief in belief, belief in some stuff that the Bible says does not equate to salvation. You must place your life, your trust in the actual person of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand, I want us all to understand, just as Peter understood then, faith is not what saves you if it's just faith in some ambiguous doctrine some ambiguous words that are in the Bible. It's trust in the person of Christ. And this is why it says in verses 19 and 20, Peter here now gets to this redemptive restoration. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter calls for these Jews to repent of their sins. They were all, everyone without exception, without excuse, Sinners in need of having their sins blotted out, forgiven. He calls for them to turn from their sin, turn to God, for it is in His presence that they may experience healing through reconciliation, restoration, and refreshment. And we know from Acts 4 that thousands responded in this way. Thousands were restored, they were healed, they were reconciled back to God through Christ. This miraculous healing of the soul is ongoing even today. And Peter says in verse 20 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And it's likely Peter was referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit that every believer receives. So here's another answer to our question of who. We, as believers, we have that who of the Holy Spirit inside of us. In difficult times, in difficult situations, we know that we need strength that is not our own, patience that is not our own. We cry out, we ask that the Spirit gives us what we need, and He does. We are in the presence of the Lord always, from the moment of salvation on. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit. He's telling the disciples, he's telling those there in, that are hearing this, that he needs to go away. He must go away. 
because there is someone that he's going to send, the helper, that will be with us, that will indwell us, that will be God in us, the very presence of God, to give us what we need, to be spirit-led, to be obedient to God. I know there are many of us, maybe even all of us, which experience chronic physical pain, suffering, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, isolation, loneliness. Maybe we feel like we don't fit in. We feel like we're lacking in some way. The world would give us an answer for healing. It's not the answer that the Bible gives us. It's a, it's a healing that turns in on ourself. It gives us reasons not to respond rightly to the gospel. It's the answers are within us. This is not the true answer. The answer is not within us, it's outside of us. It's God. I know that even in the church today, we deal with these situations. And I would pray for you and I would ask of you to turn to God, don't turn inward. To turn to God's people, don't turn to the world. God loves you in a perfect way. And his love can envelop you in such a way that you know that he is with you and he is for you. All the hurts, all the lacking, all the loneliness, all of it will be taken away at some point in the future. His perfection will be manifest before you. And your response will be to glorify him and to praise him, to worship him as he deserves. Redemptive condemnation, redemptive restoration, now redemptive proclamation. In verse 22, I'm not going to read those 22 through 26 for the, for the sake of time, but I just want to point out a few last things to draw from this passage and to try to connect back to the rest of chapter 3. Peter, in proclaiming the gospel, is coming full circle back to where he started his sermon. He's reminding the Jews that God of their fathers, the one who had made the covenant with Abraham, has fulfilled it in Jesus, the one that they killed. If we were to just draw out a few of the attributes and characteristics of God and to see them at work and display here in this passage, I would want to do these three. And so I'm going to do these three. Omnipotence, omniscience, and loving patience. So first, God's omnipotence. It's revealed as he alone has the power to assure the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises and prophecies. We can see in verse 22 that Peter says that Moses predicted the coming of a prophet like himself. And in verse 24 he says all the prophets from Samuel on down proclaim these days, the days of Jesus. Finally in verse 25 he says that God made a promise to Abraham about these days. Again, only God has the power to assure the birth of Christ, the fulfillment of those promises. Only God has the power to assure that when that Christ was crucified, he was raised on the third day. But not only was God's omnipotence on display, but so was his omniscience, his all-knowing. The second thing that we can see from this passage is how God knew and spoke through the prophets of Old Testament what would happen. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, 
from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. We see in Acts 3 that, God, that part of God's counsel was his covenant keeping through his plan of redemption, which he assured would happen and did happen through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 15, 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. We can trust in the promises of God. He does fulfill his promises. He's the only one that can. And then finally, third, Peter's proclaiming the loving patience of God. Peter reminds these Jews that from the very beginning, through Moses, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament scriptures, that God has been patiently and lovingly proclaiming his message of healing, of restoration, of repentance and reconciliation. We see in verse 24, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So this message demands a response. This message demands a response. Finally, in verse 25, Peter says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So we can see in Peter's sermon God's omnipotence, his all-power, his omniscience, his all-knowing, and his loving patience, all on display in redemptive history that is now spread out, as, as Peter said about Abraham, to all the families of the earth. Peter tells them that through all the families, or excuse me, through Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is now a global redemptive proclamation. And this call to repentance demands a response. Friends, just like the Jews, you will either listen and believe or you won't. You'll either repent of your wickedness, turn to God and be blessed, or you will remain enslaved to your sinful passions and be destroyed. You'll either experience life or destruction. You'll either experience refreshment or pain. The proclamation of the gospel is a message of hope, reconciliation, and restoration. Let's pray. Our good God, we do just thank you, Lord, that we can come to your word, that we can see and trust and know that you are with us and you are for us and that you supremely did that through the work of your son his life his death his resurrection we see lord that through the proclamation of that good truth you bring about salvation in the lives of sinners those who are without hope now have hope through your son and so we pray lord that today we would be mindful of this that we would let this truth seep into our hearts and our minds and we would be changed whether for salvation or for sanctification to be conformed more to the image of your son and so we now ask these things in jesus name amen